Welcome to the October 14th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review a study that prospectively followed tuberculosis patients after treatment initiation to evaluate iron handling during the resolution of inflammatory anemia. We will also examine clinical benefit and long-term safety of gamma retroviral gene therapy in patients with adenosine deaminase-deficient severe combined immunodeficiency. Our first manuscript is entitled, Iron Homeostasis During Anemia of Inflammation, a Prospective Study in Patients with Tuberculosis, by Colin Chercomondi from ETH Zurich in Switzerland and colleagues. Anemia of inflammation is frequently observed during chronic inflammatory and infectious conditions, including mycobacterium tuberculosis, or MTB infection. The etiology of anemia in tuberculosis is multifactorial, but anemia of inflammation plays a major role. In the setting of chronic infection or inflammation, the functional iron deficiency that results is linked to upregulation of the iron regulatory hormone hepcidin, most prominently by interleukin-6. Competing signals may simultaneously contribute to hepcidin regulation. For example, during erythroid iron demand, EPO stimulates synthesis of the hormone erythropherone in erythroblasts. In turn, erythropherone suppresses hepcidin synthesis, facilitating iron release into the circulation through ferroportin. How erythropherone and other stimulatory and suppressive signals are balanced to dictate hepcidin expression and consequent iron handling during complex inflammatory anemias in humans is not well understood. During infection, hypophoremia due to iron sequestration and decreased dietary absorption is an innate immune response to withhold iron from pathogens. In order to survive and replicate within the host, MTB, like many pathogens, must acquire iron. To capture iron, it synthesizes siderophores that bind ferric iron with high affinity and are essential for virulence. Iron excess markedly increases in vitro growth of MTB. In vivo, tuberculosis is more severe in iron-loaded mice, and high dietary iron uptake is associated with a higher risk of tuberculosis in humans. On the other hand, iron deficiency and anemia are associated with increased mortality in these patients, and anemia is associated with persistent positive sputum smears during anti-TB treatment. Thus, both iron deficiency and excess are associated with disease progression and poor clinical outcomes. Distinguishing anemia of inflammation from iron deficiency anemia is difficult because commonly used biomarkers, such as ferritin and, to a lesser extent, soluble transferrin receptor, are confounded by inflammation. Therefore, deciding if and when tuberculosis patients should be given iron supplements is unclear. In this study, Chercomondi and colleagues conducted a 26-week prospective study in Tanzanian adults with tuberculosis. Patients were assessed before treatment and every two weeks during TB therapy. The study evaluated iron kinetics and changes in inflammation and iron metabolism indices. Oral and intravenous iron tracers were administered before treatment, after an eight-week intensive phase of four oral TB drugs, 
and at completion of treatment at week 26, following two drug therapy from weeks 8 to 24. Of note, no iron supplements were given to patients. The authors found that before treatment, hepcidin and erythropherone levels were greatly elevated, erythrocyte iron utilization was high, and iron absorption was negligible. Hepcidin and interleukin-6 decreased by approximately 70% after only two weeks of TB treatment and was associated with a marked decline in inflammatory markers. The resulting mobilization of sequestered iron allowed a surge in reticulocytosis at two weeks, and by four weeks, there was a significant rise in hemoglobin. Notably, there was no statistically significant decrease in EPO or erythropherone until week eight. Higher erythropherone during treatment was negatively correlated with hepcidin and positively correlated with reticulocytosis and hemoglobin repletion. These findings are consistent with a role for erythropherone in the resolution of anemia of inflammation, as EPO stimulates synthesis of erythropherone and erythropherone suppresses hepcidin. During treatment, maintaining elevated erythropherone concentrations for several weeks after resolution of inflammation may help suppress hepcidin, ensuring iron mobilization for recovery from anemia of inflammation. After treatment completion, iron absorption increased approximately 20-fold, and the hemoglobin level increased by approximately 25%. In summary, the study findings suggest that in tuberculosis-associated anemia of inflammation, elevated erythropherone is unable to suppress hepcidin, and iron absorption is minimal. However, with treatment, as inflammation resolves, erythropherone may remain elevated, contributing to hepcidin suppression and hemoglobin repletion. The study suggests that iron supplementation before and during treatment of tuberculosis is unlikely to be effective and may be unnecessary as mobilization of sequestered iron provided ample iron for erythropoiesis and hemoglobin recovery. Instead, the authors conclude that iron supplementation should only be given to tuberculosis patients that remain anemic after completion of treatment. In their accompanying commentary, Andrew Armitage and Hal Drakesmith from University of Oxford in the UK praise the study's unprecedented level of characterization of iron homeostasis during a human inflammatory anemia. Furthermore, they highlight the study's demonstration that treating a particular infection can be sufficient to suppress inflammation-induced hepcidin and softly open the iron gates to restore hemoglobin. The question they propose is whether this is the case for other types of inflammatory anemia and not only TB. Our next study from Brianna Reinhardt and Omar Habib from the University of California, Los Angeles, and their colleagues is entitled Long-Term Outcomes After Gene Therapy for Adenosine Deaminase Severe Combined Immune Deficiency. Deficiency of adenosine deaminase, or ADA, results from the lack of functional ADA enzyme. Infants born with profound ADA deficiency develop severe combined immunodeficiency, or SCID. When ADA enzyme is nonfunctional, high levels of substrates, adenosine and deoxyadenosine, accumulate systemically. Lymphoid cells with high levels of deoxycytidine kinase can phosphorylate deoxyadenosine and accumulate deoxyadenosine triphosphate, or DATP. Excess DATP is linked to apoptosis in immature thymocytes, 
and consequently the impairment of T, B, and natural killer cell differentiation and function. As a result, ADA-SCID patients have severe lymphopenia and are susceptible to life-threatening infections. There are several methods for treating ADA-SCID that can restore functional immunity and confer natural resistance to infections, including ADA enzyme replacement therapy, allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, or autologous transplantation with gene-corrected cells. In this study, the investigators followed a gene therapy approach, withholding enzyme replacement therapy to improve the selective survival advantage of gene-corrected lymphocytes. Autologous bone marrow CD34-positive cells were transduced ex vivo with a gamma retroviral vector and infused following busulfan-reduced-intensity conditioning. In line with U.S. FDA guidelines, the patients in this Phase II trial were required to be followed for a total of 15 years to monitor the safety and efficacy of gene therapy for ADA-SCID. A prior study reported on the first two years of follow-up after gene therapy for this cohort. The current Phase II study presents longer-term outcomes, 8 to 11 years after gene therapy was administered between 2009 and 2012, to 10 ADA-SCID patients whose ages ranged from 3 months to 15 years. The researchers found that 9 of 10 patients showed sufficient immune reconstitution to protect against serious infections and did not need to resume enzyme replacement therapy or proceed to secondary allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Enzyme replacement therapy was restarted six months after gene therapy in the oldest patient, who had no evidence of benefit from gene therapy. Outcomes were generally better in younger patients and those receiving higher doses of gene-marked CD34-positive cells. Four of the nine evaluable patients with the highest gene marking and B-cell numbers remain off immunoglobulin replacement therapy and have responded to vaccines. There were broad ranges of responses in normalization of ADA enzyme activity and adenine metabolites in blood cells. There has been normal growth of all patients treated early in life with no serious opportunistic infections. Importantly, no patient experienced a leukoproliferative event after gene therapy, despite persisting prominent clones with vector integrations adjacent to proto-oncogenes. Also, there was no detection of replication-competent retrovirus, no observation of new malignancies, or no other complications related to gene therapy. These long-term findings demonstrate enduring efficacy of gene therapy for ADA-SCID, but a potential risk of genotoxicity with gamma retroviral vectors. The authors cite that studies using a lentiviral vector for ADA-SCID have reported more consistent development of robust immune reconstitution with a higher percentage of patients able to discontinue immunoglobulin replacement therapy compared to this cohort. Thus, while gene therapy for ADA-SCID using a gamma retroviral vector has supported survival and immune reconstitution in patients, its potential for genotoxicity has justified the subsequent transition to lentiviral vectors for ADA-SCID and other disorders. In an accompanying commentary, Sung Young Pai from the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, commends this study as one of the first successful trials of gene therapy for inherited immune deficiency, or for that matter, any disease. Pi points out that ADA-SCID stands in contrast to other inherited immunodeficiencies where gamma-retroviral gene therapy has been employed, 
in that insertional oncogenesis has been very rarely seen. Gamma retroviruses tend to insert near the transcriptional start site of genes, leading to the possibility that the strong regulatory elements driving expression of the transgene of interest may inadvertently transactivate genes near the insertion site in a particular cell. In prior studies, insertions near LMO2 have been largely responsible for high rates of T-cell leukemia, or lymphoma, in patients with X-linked SCID and Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. Also, insertions near MECOM have been associated with myelodysplastic syndrome, or acute myeloid leukemia, in patients with X-linked chronic granulomatous disease, and again, Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. Among the 10 patients in this study, six had integrants detected at more than one time point in proto-oncogenes implicated in insertional oncogenesis, such as MECOM, LMO2, HMGA2, and IKZF1, yet none have had clinical evidence of leukemia. Indeed, only one of at least 50 patients with ADA-SCID who have undergone therapy with a gamma retroviral vector on clinical trials has developed leukemia. Why ADA-SCID patients appear to have a much lower risk of insertional oncogenesis, despite the use of gamma retroviral vectors, remains unsolved. Gene therapy has advanced considerably since this trial was conducted. More recent trials, including those studying ADA-SCID, use lentiviral vectors that have a more neutral insertion pattern, shorter transduction time, and are higher titer vectors. Some vectors use cell or gene-specific promoters and codon-optimized transgenes that lead to more regulated and higher expression. In addition, cryopreservation of transduced cells and transduction enhancers improve uniformity and quality of cell products and their portability. While the gamma retroviral vector approach reported in this study lacks the innovation of contemporary approaches, it has ultimately shown to be efficacious. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.